We are finding a lot of great Christian-made fantastical novels, and among these titles, we also see that many of their authors want to conjure a literary elixir that has evaded all but the most elite Christian creators. They call this crossing over. They want to make stories not just for Christian readers and evangelical markets, but they want to go out into the wild frontier and find a bigger fan base in general markets. Should these stories try to present non-believers with better views of Christians or the church? How should they help secular readers in some way? What's the best way to do this, not just according to the results or the numbers, but according to the Bible? Here we go again at Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory, applying their meanings to the real world, important phrase there that Jesus calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. I published lorehaven.com. I'm a speaker and an author. My first book was co-authored and it is The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I'm still trying to cross through the uh, COVID brain fog a little bit here, so you'll have to forgive me, but this is episode... 124, How Should Christian Novels Help Secular Readers? That title sounds great, Zach. Now, behind the scenes, oh, faithful listeners, Zach and I actually wrestled a bit with this title. (laughs) We didn't have creative differences. I think we just felt it was very important to get this one right, because if you use words like crossover or you talk about Christian markets versus general markets, it gets a little jargony. People start thinking, oh, here's a writer's podcast. Well, we're not a writer's podcast. We're a fan podcast. We love these kinds of stories. We want to see them make Christian readers and general market readers or folks who may not necessarily be Christian readers. uh, We want these stories to, in some ways, make them happy. Uh, But there's a lot of ideas out there about how should Christian novels help the secular readers? How do we make them happy? Maybe how do we do a little PR for those bad Christians out there? And all of that goes into today's show. And so we felt it was important to get a good title like that one. How should mm-hmm. Christian novels help secular readers? I think Zach was the first one who said the, the title in those words in, the, in that order. Yeah. So we're going to be talking from a reader's perspective, like which books do you give your friends to help them? What kind of fears are you helping them put aside? What kind of happiness do you want your, your secular friends to experience through a Christian book? That's exactly what we're going to tackle today because Christians have a lot of ideas about what a book should do for their non-Christian friends. Zach, before we get back to our cover sponsor for this episode, I have to ask you an unplanned question. Have you ever or have you ever known anyone who gave a Christian novel, including but not limited to a fantastical novel, to a secular friend because you thought it might help them see Jesus or think uh, better about the church? Oh, sure. I've, I've done this myself many times. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of many people doing this. We've talked about the left behind craze. I think that was the first time I really saw that in action. Those are, I mean, those were the first Christian novels I even knew about that I didn't really know Christian novels existed before then for some reason. And yeah, lots of people were, were giving out those books, talking about those books, sharing them with others. Uh, people I work with were reading them and telling me about them. And I was a very nominal Christian when that first happened. So yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a natural thing. I think probably what's changed in the last 20 years is it's sort of become a trope or it's sort of become a, a definitive strategy. Like you can almost write word for word what a PR firm or a publisher is going to say about take this book and do, you know, X, Y, Z, or take this movie and do da, 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 da. 
in fact, there was a new, text a your new friends. Christian, yeah. They were send a message to Hollywood, that, that kind of thing. And so um, I think what's changed is that it's, it's become more kind of a program that we follow. There's different programs that people follow. And so there's different results people are trying to get through this process. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about all that today. After we get to our cover sponsor for this episode, which is for today, Oasis Audio. This week's episode is sponsored by them, who are the publishers of the finest in clean and family-safe fantasy and science fiction, including works by the creator of The Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum. If you want to please your inner child or your own children, enter the world of Trot and Captain Bill as they travel under the ocean in the Sea Fairies and in the air in its magical sequel, Sky Island, both beautifully narrated by Rebecca K. Reynolds with new introductions by Eric Shanower. If you want to learn more about one of the greatest American storytellers, Listen to Oz and Beyond, the fantasy world of L. Frank Baum, or The Real Wizard of Oz, the L. Frank Baum biography. These and all other great Oasis audio titles are available from Audible, Amazon, and your favorite library's audiobook system, and coming soon to Spotify. Visit oasisaudio.com for more information. You can also get that link in our show notes for this episode, 124, or for more details, go to our podcast sponsors page, lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Okay, now Stephen, that that right there is hilarious. That you you this Flows is our perfectly, sponsor, right? Yes, and that you and that you asked me that question right before the sponsor because as soon as you read this, I'm like, well, I should give this book to my sister Nicole because she is a Wizard of Oz super fan. She has probably every copy of every version of Wizard of Oz. She got all the follow up. She knows all the backstory. Uh, her dog is named Franklin <laughs> after Franklin L. Baum. Uh, we call him Frankie. Oh, L, L, is L Frank Baum? Or, or yeah, fr- fr- yes. yeah, L Frank Baum. So we yeah, yeah, yeah. cool names so we, back then. We yeah. call him Frankie. And uh, so, you know, it, as soon as you read this, I'm like, well, I got to get this audio book and give it to her. So there we go. You know, this we're, we're putting this in action. I, I think this book, she'd really enjoy it. I'm guessing, well, you speak, though, primarily in terms of enjoyment, uh, not in terms of that thing that I think we're aware of, you know, the Christian ants doing, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, maybe when we were growing up in the church back home, somebody at the church would give people uh, the clean Christian romance or the end times thriller uh, or something like that, uh, because it was going to communicate a message to the person's Mm. neighbor. Uh, And which makes sense, you know, Christians sharing uh, largely Christian made books, one with another. Like I defend the existence of Christian subcultures, plural, by the way, there's more than one of them. Uh, unlike some pundits who declare decry the Christian culture, like, no, there's not a monoculture, you guys. But what we're talking about is this habit that I think that people still do today of, I, I need to uh, share a Christian made novel with my unsaved friend, uh, not just because it's really, really good, but because I want them to get something out of it. I want them to be helped in some way. I want them to see the church better. Uh, maybe they'll even find Jesus. You know, I think the the word there we could use is evangelism. But as we talked about in a lot of our uh, our pre-flight uh, for this show, uh, which went on for quite some time, rightfully so, uh, a lot of folks who think this way would be like, no, I'm, I'm not trying to evangelize somebody. You know, they know all their lines about how stories should not evangelize or be preachy. Uh, they would say, and I think pass a polygraph exam in saying, like, I'm just trying to share a, a good story with this person. But at the same time, like Christians who grow up in evangelical culture, we inherit this idea uh, that we are about mission in some way. And I think uh, that's right that we inherit that. But I think that can come out in some very flawed ways. 
and I will go ahead and spoil the ending here before we get to the concession stand. Uh, we're not necessarily going to talk so much about the old flawed way, although I think it is still flawed, of uh, I'm going to give a copy of Left Behind to my atheist friend uh, so that he knows that there's going to be a rapture uh, and he doesn't want to be left behind and face the Antichrist. But if he does, uh, then he can still get saved and join a tribulation force. Like, I think that's well intended, but at the same time, like, I don't think that the atheist friend uh, is going to get saved by reading a copy of Left Behind uh, because they seem to be so overwhelmed by the weight of the eschatological arguments in the book. Like, I, I'd be very curious if uh, an actual atheist uh, converted in that way. But I think the new version, Zach, is not so much I want to get someone saved, but I think the idea that we see, and it's often caught and not taught by some younger Christian creators, I think the idea that we see is a Christian-made novel should not try to evangelize the reader, but they should help the secular reader in some way, including but not limited to doing a little public relations for the church, helping people feel not so bad about the church, or maybe even uh, showing a better way, showing that Christians aren't bigots, Christians aren't politically compromised, like not preaching this message, but just being real subtle about it. And I've literally seen some books that go here, uh, and yes, they can be very preachy about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's another type of motive that Christians give a book to a friend, which is pre-evangelism. So it's, uh, this was kind of the approach that C.S. Lewis went through, or this is rather the transformation he went through. He said that, uh, George MacDonald's book baptizes imagination. And then he, you know, he sort of went through a little bit of both of this, that he realized, oh, wow, Christians can actually write really good books and have a really fantastic imagination. But he also, through this process of, of reading MacDonald, befriending Tolkien, um, he re he first realized that uh, theism is true. Like before he came to believe that Christianity was true, he realized that theism is true. Um, there's another uh, example of this in the modern day Holly Ordway, who I believe is a professor at uh, Houston Baptist University. And she went from atheist to Christian, but she had a midstep where she became just a theist. And so this is what I know a lot of Christian uh, books aim to do is sort of you know, put the, put the pieces on the chessboard in the right places, I guess, or, or just sort of clear off all the, the clutter and, and the obstacles and say, okay, look, there's a God who created the world. This is like the intelligent design approach, I guess. I'm using a lot of analogies here. Um, the, the point is a lot of books may not preach the gospel and they may not necessarily do PR for the church, but it's more that they kind of prepare the way for the gospel to be preached. But you know, I think the other approach too is just, hey, uh, here's a book I think you will enjoy just because I know what you like. And this looks like a book that fits with your tastes. And so this would, I would even call this the Esther approach. Just, uh, hey, before I ask you something, I just want to give you a feast. <laughs> and then at the end of this feast, I'm just going to ask you to come to another feast uh, just because I love you. And, you know, no agenda. No, I'm not trying to prove anything about the church. I'm not trying to prove anything about God. I just, I love you. And here's something really fun I think you'll enjoy. Yeah, let's get to the concession stand before we get much further. I'm raring to go for this one, though. And we may think of more concessions as we go. So let's just uh, pop the plexiglass off of that uh, concession stand and keep it open uh, for the next uh, three chapters of this discussion. Uh, the first concession I have, a little tasty snack here, is yes. 
I think we're thinking, Zach and I, of some particular authors, past and present here, uh, published often, uh, but there's also some rhetoric we see among aspiring Christian creators uh, who have good intentions, who want to reach the world, who want to help secular readers through the stories that they create. Uh, and some of them have been published and some of them have gotten quite popular, uh, again, past as well as present. Uh, no, we're not going to name those folks because the, the show is not uh, you know, a polemic against any particular voices. And by the way, I mean, motives vary with folks. I, I've talked before on this podcast about the church back home syndrome where people do seem to have uh, it in for a particular church that they may remember growing up, or maybe it was a private Christian organization or an employer, somebody like that, uh, that defines how they see their missionary project now. You know, every non-believer must surely have the same struggles with the church that the author has seen in her or his own life. And so uh, that person can get very niche in their approach, and then they start making universal statements about, well, the church always or the church never uh, or here's what uh, secular readers need. Like everybody's an individual, you guys. Like you can identify certain majority trends, but people fear or dislike the church or reject Jesus for various reasons. And the only only universal reason there is the one that Scripture gives us: men loved darkness rather than light. Like there's still the sinful impulse there. If we're going to be realistic, we need to recognize that. Anyway, uh, just to wrap that concession up there, it's not an attack on particular authors. Uh, we are talking about ideas here. By the way, uh, we've used the term evangelism here and there. Uh, Zach used it a bit uh, just a moment ago. Uh, I mentioned that we uh, went through a lot more planning for this show because we think that some, some Christian creators would say, well, my stories are not trying to evangelize. Or this book is not about evangelism. And with the greatest respect, I would say that every Christian, every Christian who loves Jesus is always about evangelism, whether we like it or not. Uh, mainly, I think, though, this is not about someone trying to give John 3.16 in a book, but they're trying to maybe build into their story, consciously or otherwise, kind of an apologetic uh, for the church. Um, there's another author and speaker named Sean McDowell uh, who says uh, with the uh, uh, Think Biblically podcast, uh, he's at Biola University, one of the things I believe that he is saying is that previous generations wanted to know, uh, is the Bible true or is, is Christianity true? And largely, uh, this is generally true, largely people now want to know, is Christianity good? Now, that's a very positive way of phrasing that question. I think a lot of people want to know, uh, want to dare the Christian, like, prove to me, according to my own terms, that Christianity is good. And that gets a little bit more complicated. I think a lot of Christian authors accept the premise there. Uh, that people want to be proven that Christianity is good uh, based on their own rules, and then they want to do, like I said, PR for the church. They want to preserve the church's reputation. Uh, this does relate to the rhetoric that we see from them. And we may see, I think, uh, especially if you, uh, gentle, faithful listener, uh, are trying to make your own stories, uh, we may see in making these stories a way to help make things right in the world. Uh, but I think the problem there that we don't know about is that especially if we grew up as evangelicals, we come from a sheltered world. I think everybody comes from a sheltered world, just limited by their own experiences. But even the leftists now, the woke people and all of that will talk about, you know, well, your experiences define how you see things. Like there's a little truth there in the whole postmodernism thing. Uh, your experience will limit how you see things. And I think in this case, there's a word we're going to be using, especially in chapter three, realistic. Uh, in our uh, Fantastical Truth promo, we said we apply the meanings of these stories to the real world. That means we've got to step outside our sheltered world. So whether you are the Christian grandma from the 90s or whatever, 
uh, or you are the eager uh, Christian uh, 20-something uh, from the 2020s. Because of our sheltered experience, sometimes we don't necessarily see the real nature, including the rather grimdark realities of the world in front of us. And because of our media consumption and social media and ideas that we imbibe from Christian culture and secular culture, sometimes we just don't know what real world we're trying to share stories into. So that was a long concession stand. Zach, uh, thank you for uh, enjoying these snacks with me again. Let's leave it open. Any thoughts, uh, any more concessions you made up before we go to chapter one? Well, you know, back to our original question, should how should Christian novels help secular readers? I think what this always comes down to is what do Christians think secular readers need? And and how is a book going to meet that need? And I think there's different ways different Christians are going to answer that. And I would even say sometimes that that can even be the wrong question like you know who who has ever received a book that where the person has said here you need this? <laughs> it's like do I need this or do you need? No, you people know, say you've you got to read this, which is yeah. kind of the same thing, but the intent is different. Like this book made me so happy, I want to share this happiness with you. There you go. Yeah, ver- versus like this is uh you know you've got a disease and this book is the cure uh, for something wrong with you. Um, or, you know, I need you to read this book to feel better about myself or, so I I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of times where we just need to look in in the mirror and just kind of examine ourselves. Um, but yeah, let's, let's get into our, our first chapter here. Yeah. Chapter one is uh, mainly about that topic of crossing over. Uh, This is a phrase I've heard for a while. It's slightly jargony, but I'm, I'm using it here because we still want to peek behind the scenes about some of the words uh, that Christians have used about their creations. How have Christian novels tried to cross over into general markets? Now, this here is where I wish, Zach, we had uh, Thomas Imstead Jr. or somebody on here who could talk about uh, a little bit more of the history of evangelical publishing. Uh, Maybe when we do our big uh, series, uh, our saga coming up here is a little teaser there. Uh, We can get some more information from behind the scenes about that. But I was introduced to this concept, actually, in relation to uh, Frank Peretti. Uh, there was an article in World Magazine by Jean Edward Veith uh, that was titled This Present and Future Peretti. I've referenced it a few times on previous shows. Uh, it came out, I think, in 1997. That's right. And Peretti is on the cover of World Magazine. And it was a lovely, lovely uh, article. Uh, really great. He was a little snarky about uh, the angels and demons, you know, bust them up fiction. I think Jean Edward Veith is uh, sort of a, a more literary type who may not have uh, and appreciated the stories as much as we do. Uh, but it was a great interview. Uh, and uh, one of the things that was revealed in there was Peretti's attempt to cross over uh, with his uh, novel, The Oath, in 1995. Now, The Oath, from what I remember, is a good novel, uh, but it, it did mark an attempt uh, after Peretti written three novels that were bestsellers among the evangelical community. Uh, this novel was an attempt to go a little bit more mainstream. Uh, we, I don't think we've talked about the oath as much here, and mm, and I'm not no. saying it's like Peretti's lesser novel or anything like that. Um, I think he has a couple of lesser novels that I won't name here. But the oath was just a a paranormal uh, horror story about a monster uh, that's terrorizing uh, this remote uh, Pacific Northwest town uh, that is being covered up, and uh, eventually it turns out being worshipped by the townspeople and their descendants through the generations. Uh, won't spoil it too much there but ultimately ends up being a very simple uh, yet powerful uh, allegory uh, by the end uh, about sin and repentance. And uh, the line that Peretti used in this article 
was in reference to apparently working with an editor from a, a general market publisher. So not a Christian uh, publisher, a Christian identifying publisher, but just someone who's more aware of the needs of non-Christian or secular readers. Uh, and uh, I remember this uh, very clearly. Uh, Gene Edward Veith said that the, the editor, who is unnamed in this story, like said to Peretti, well, hey, why can't you, um, why can't you have the hero and the heroine uh, end up uh, together by the end? And Peretti's response was, because the point of this novel is that sin will kill you. <laughs> Interestingly there, yeah, and, and spoiler alert, she dies. And it's actually pretty gruesome. You know, I read this in 1995, and you know, it was definitely Peretti getting more detailed in describing the exact nature mm. of the death. Uh, and, uh, and yet the imagery is very vivid. And I remembered uh, his idea of the stain of sin uh, for quite some time. So this is an overtly Christian novel, but that crossed some lines, uh, uh, even uh, here and there with language, but certainly with violence and gore and horror uh, that I was not used to in previous Peretti novels. Uh, and at one point, actually, there's, a, a, there's an off-screen uh, incidence of a premarital sex that scandalized me. Like, there's no description whatsoever. He just, he goes to, he fades to black really quick. And in fact, that's very clearly portrayed as part of the sin that will kill you. Uh, and yet this was a novel that was meant to cross over. Uh, it was very evangelistic by the end, you know, monsters defeated by the name of Jesus type stuff. You know, uh, I'm not sure whether it did, uh, but that introduced me to the concept of, you know, jumping out of the evangelical market, at least trying to, you know, get into the uh, S class uh, or trying to get from, you know, a class to S class novelist and trying to break out of those Christian categories which is kind of funny because The Oath was published in 1995. Uh, I think it was a Christian publisher. And I think it was that same year uh, that Left Behind, the first book already uh, mentioned in this episode, was also published. And I don't remember whether Left Behind itself crossed over, but eventually, weirdly enough, the Left Behind series did. And I highly doubt that there were any uh, general market consultants uh, trying to help the Left Behind series crossed over. Like Tim LaHaye was Mr. Evangelical, and Jerry B. Jenkins is a journeyman author and the uh, you know editor of Moody Monthly and a editor uh, or writer of a bunch of uh, Christian uh, sports biographies. So not necessarily in a recipe for secular success. And yet those books hit the top of the New York Times bestseller list for several years running. Uh, Nonbelievers or at least people who weren't finding these books in Christian bookstores were snapping them up apart from any attempt to cross over that I'm aware of. Okay, so this is this is one way of crossing over that a Christian book could do, it, it could sort of adopt the tone of, you know, PG 13 movies. So what I, I'm curious to know, what are some other ways that books have, have tried to cross over in, in gather um, more secular mainstream readers. Um, but, but actually uh, while you think about that, cause I, I can think of some, some other ways that categorically books do that, but you know, we we're talking about left behind and, I would I would say a book from that same era that did try to cross over was the Christ Clone trilogy, uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it focuses on a non-Christian character for the majority of the book, so he doesn't uh, like get that, saved uh, right after his wife is raptured, uh, like correct. the, the her- hero of Okay, Left Behind. Okay, correct. Now, now, spoiler alert: that you know, he he crosses over eventually, uh, but I won't I won't share how Cross that happens is it, over yes yeah <laughs> there's so many puns that we could we could go into there um but that book um <clears throat> it it tries to i guess honor the non-christian by you know not um not making the one non-christian character like the token character or whatever but 
but making him the main, like the hero of the story, like the protagonist that you care about. And he's going through all these terrible things in revelation and not understanding why. And he's, you know, being kind of fed all these lies from the antichrist, but it's, it's sort of like he's seeing everything in a bubble, like, like in this kind of political secular bubble because he works at the UN. And so he's not like, you know, hearing the Christians talk the whole time about, oh, this is God's fourth trumpet or whatever. He's just seeing these disasters happen and not really understand why. And so I, I thought that was an honorable attempt to bring in a, a secular, secular reader. And then secondly, the fact that he, the, the author, um, really entertains this very speculative science of cloning and this very theologically speculative idea that and, and this is not really a spoiler. This is the first you know, chapter or two. This very speculative idea that um, Jesus' skin cells might still be found in the Shroud of Turin and be used to create a clone of Jesus, uh, who, well, spoiler alert, becomes the Antichrist. But, you know, th- this is a very uncomfortable idea for a lot of Christians, so much so that the author has a Ford where he says, he's like, he kind of says some stuff about cloning or whatever. And then he's like, and to my Christian readers, you know, uh, remember the words of King Solomon that the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And so it's oh, like, that's hang, a good way to it's phrase like it. hang in there. Yes. It's like hang in there, Christian readers. And and so when I first read that book, um, I didn't really get it. And, but then I just recently reread the book and Stephen, I'll tell you, I, I, now I see the intent of that book, which was to cross over. And it was like, my primary audience is non-Christians and to my Christian readers, just hang in there. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. <laughs> but you know, this book was published by uh, time Warner or something. It yeah, wasn't it's a, a secular publisher. publisher. Yeah. Right. That so, is surprised so me. Yeah. I'd be curious about the backstory there. I mean, I know well, what's the date here that I'm seeing for the first one in his image, a very Christian-y sounding title. And of course the series uh, title is Christ clone trilogy. So you're putting Christ right up front there. But it's published in War- by Warner Books in 1998, uh, it looks like here. Uh, and that was uh, just a few years into Left Behind series, which uh, by that point was already becoming pretty popular. So uh, all the behind-the-scenes stuff aside, like, yeah, I think this, uh, this illustrates a, a past attempt uh, to cross over. But it is, is interesting that in the 90s, there was at least for a while this idea that, hey, you could cross over while still being overt about uh, Christianity. Now, the author may have been you know, entertaining some more speculative concepts that may have been off-putting to some Christian readers. And that may have helped uh, non-Christians, by the way, like, ooh, he's going to do something messy with Christianity. You know, I'm intrigued, you know, and maybe they're going to get the Christians real good. You know, there's a bit of a bluff there, maybe uh, by accident, if not intention. But you could be overt about those things, uh, at least in the past or so it was thought. I'm not sure how well the series sold, but uh, I know that I'm familiar with it. Uh, I think catching us up to the present, I, I think you may see some Christian publishers still trying to cross over, but they, I don't know if they use those terms as much, or maybe I'm just not paying attention to their language or something. But I, I think there's definitely an attempt by some Christian publishers that uh, try Christian fantastical fiction, for example. Uh, they, they wouldn't downplay the faith element. I mean, they're not going to hide their light under a bushel. They're not going to deny Jesus three times before the publishing rooster crows. <laughs> I think it's more an issue of, you know, they're not going to lead with an end times thriller. They're not going to set a story in or close to this world. Uh, it's going to be like an alternate history or a fantasy world or maybe even the very rare science fiction world 
but the science fiction world is going to be set, you know, way out there in a galaxy far, far away somewhere. You know, Earth and its religions are probably not going to be named because it is, oddly enough, safer sometimes the further you go from Earth, uh, the more separate you get from uh, modern labels and issues and things like that. And I think the expressions of faith we see in those stories tend to be more subtle. Uh, they often feature, I would say, non-Christian or coded non-Christian characters uh, who discover faith or have uh, some kind of a return uh, to faith. Uh, there is a few uh, uh, contemporary novels uh, by or contemporary set novels with a fantastical edge that I've read that feature non-Christian characters. And almost always they're on a journey back to faith in some way. Uh, but the heroes are rarely Christians uh, in these books uh, that I've seen. Uh, they almost always uh, err on the side of a more secular protagonist. And I don't know if that's an attempt to cross over or if it's eh, just in case, or maybe Christians just find it easier to write secular characters in their view. I'm not sure. But I think that impulse is still there. And I'm talking about books that are being you know, published, books that we're finding, like you know, some books we're reviewing for Lorehaven. And in chapter two, in a bit here, uh, we will talk about you know how this how this approach trickles down to maybe those who would like to make these kinds of books and some of the ideas that they catch about how these books ought to best help secular readers. Now, we both talked about books where there is a non-Christian character that goes on a faith journey and becomes a Christian. What I'd be curious to know is, are there Christian books where a non-Christian character features prominently and never becomes a Christian and, and just stays as a non-Christian you know, doesn't have the, some deathbed confession. Oh, after say, I don't know, a car wreck or something uh, right before a Christian music concert. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, but just lives their life and not necessarily happily ever after, but just sort of goes on. Maybe it's a side character, maybe not. Uh, or maybe it is the main character and they achieve their goal, but they don't ever, you know, convert to Christianity or something. So basically, is there a story a, a that you're aware of like that? Yeah. yeah well, I don't know. I mean, I don't read every book that even that we receive at Lorehaven, uh, just so many books, so little time, you know, the t-shirt is true. Most of the books I've read, like I said, feature non-Christian or coded non-Christian characters. I see you looking at a bookshelf for inspiration there, and I'm imagining my bookshelf uh, outside the studio. Um, if it's a fantasy novel, I think it's almost certainly, uh, maybe not almost, the majority of cases are, I think, non-christian or coded non-christian characters uh learning to find some kind of belief in deism in that world you know the one or the light or the source or you know whatever mm -hmm. fantasy world name you give for god um it's it's almost always pre-evangelism uh, as you said zach you know moving towards simple deism as you mentioned uh, in your intro to this show and i'm talking there i mean in comparison to some christian made novels like that could almost seem an overt expression of a, of a faith content I still think that it's very subtle. And frankly, this is my opinion. This is not the thrust of the show, but I wish we had more Christian-made fantasy novels, no matter their audience or their intended audience, that featured Christian characters who weren't backslidden, uh, who, <laughs> who, who weren't trying to find their way back, who, who weren't trying to recover from a tragic past and just need to let go and let God. You know, uh, Some of the stuff I grew up reading uh, was uh, always struck me, at least in retrospect, uh, as a little bit milk toast uh, in that approach. Uh, and yet, like for example, a, a noteworthy exception I think is the um, the science fiction novel Oxygen that we've talked about before by John B. Olson and Randall Ingermanson. Uh, the heroine is a female astronaut who is Christian, 
Now, I, I still think, you know, she's very uh, mainstream evangelical-ish. You know, she's not shown that I can remember going to church or claiming a particular denomination. You know, she's not praying all the time, but that is her faith background, and she takes it seriously. Uh, and yet her uh, her co-star in that novel, Bob, uh, talking about Valkyrie, her co-star Bob is a, is a non-Christian. You know, he's basically agnostic. And there's actually some themes in there uh, where, you know, they're putting together the Mars program. Uh, and uh, like they actually show some non or some Christian ish protesters, uh, which I, I think is kind of fun. I, I think Christians now or whenever the Mars program rolls around, will be too busy protesting public schools and things to protest the space program. Uh, but, you know, it's conceivable. Uh, and they, I thought it was kind of great and a bit realistic that the authors showed that this is a possibility. But Christian character, non-Christian character, it was a, it was a fun duality there, uh, even though a lot of the Christian themes were still pretty subtle. Yeah, I guess this is sort of a hard question to ask because most books have a character going through an internal change in the context of some external quest. And so a a Christian, you know, who's backslidden and then comes back to the faith. And I'm even thinking of secular stories where this happens, like uh, M. Night Shyamalan Signs, where Mel Gibson is this sort of backslidden priest or something that that comes you know, out of this tragedy of losing his wife and then he, an alien invasion happens and then he comes back to the faith at the end. Um, that, I mean, that's a compelling story because there's a, a vast internal change. And then also, of course, the conversion story of a secular character that becomes a Christian. Um, you know, those are very, uh, those are very captivating stories because of the story or the character arc, you know, the, the, the delta between where they start and where they end. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's possible to have a story about a Christian character who's already faithful and ends in a faithful place, but something has to change, right? So something has to be different and new. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be faith-related. It could be something else. Uh, maybe they're reconciled with a loved one, or maybe they, um, well, I mean, maybe they give up an addiction or something, or maybe they... Uh, maybe they start an addiction. No, let's not tell a story about that, but they have to go through some kind of a change. And so, but yeah, I think our default is to make that change huge and and to make it like, you know, from, from night to day, basically that they become, uh, you know, a faithful Christian when they, when they were just pretending to be a Christian. Um, I don't know. I, I'm interested in, uh, other examples of this and where, this has gone well and where this hasn't gone well, because, and I think, you know, when these first started coming out 20 years ago, as we've talked about, we lived in the neutral world. <laughs> you know, we, we lived in a different day that's and age. True, where that's true. Yes. You, you could pick up these books at Walmart and Costco and, and whatever. Uh, and now there are no Christian bookstores. And so we're, uh, and, and that's other reasons. It's not, it's not like the evil government has closed the well, Christian well, the, the big The big chains folded. Uh, the family Christian stores uh, folded and Lifeway yeah. is online only. I mean, there's still some independently owned or, you know, denominationally affiliated uh, stores out there. Like Mardell is still out there, but, you know, it's em- equally emphasizing Christian education resources. Yeah. So. But I mean, there's three other Christian bookstores here in town, I believe, that closed and one other major secular or general market chain that closed. And so bo- uh, bookstores altogether have been going through tough times. But, um, I, I also think because Christians have done this a lot in the last uh, few decades, I think maybe it's set people on edge a little bit, or maybe it's like, 
a lot of secular readers can kind of smell it coming like, Oh, I know what this is. This is one of those evangelism books. And you're trying to, you're trying to missionize me as the, the Sora said, as I was looking up other words for this, you're trying to proselytize me like whoever says that word. Um, and so maybe it's, uh, people are a little bit more guarded now, but, um, so I, I think you're right in that the way this is mostly being done now is not focusing on the faith aspects and, and, and not even focusing on the present world, but sort of these alter worlds where there, there is some kind of internal spiritual journey, but it's not like a one-to-one with Christianity. Like it's, it's not like here's a biblical world, but it's like, here's a supposal, you know, here's this Narnian kind of world, if you know, lack of a better term. Zach, I kind of want to interrupt our own show here and talk about should Christian novels feature more Christian characters? I may have just named a future show. And frankly, I would give away the answer. I say yes. Uh, I, I think we've had, personally, I've had enough of non-Christian or coded non-Christian characters and their struggles. Like, I wouldn't consider myself an advanced Christian, like intermediate at best. Uh, still very novice, actually. But you're, like, there's you're some, a 201 Christian. Exactly. Well, there's some very <laughs> basic Christian struggles that I don't see reflected in stories. You know, people are always going back to like some very particularly recurring uh, faith struggles that, you know, to me are rather far in the past if I ever had them at all. And so, frankly, it makes it difficult for me to identify too personally with characters. And maybe it's, you know, being a man, you know, maybe it's uh, being, you know, in a particular life station. I'm not sure. But Anyway, we got to move on, uh, not only to chapter two, uh, but to our next sponsor for this episode. Once again, it is P.S. Patton's novel, The Withering, a science fiction novel uh, amongst a sea of fantasy novels. And uh, for that reason alone, I would want to draw attention to uh, this story uh, from P.S. Patton, which launched on July the 26th. Here is the description. Their world has reached its end. The fight for their future has only just begun. The moon will soon collide with the surface of Nolaro, and three orphaned teens have nothing left in the world but each other. As the apocalypse threatens to end all life on their world, Ro is desperate to protect his little brother and secure a future for themselves, while Jima falls captive to her dark past. A sardonic traveling magician offers them a way off their dying world, but at what cost? Their search for an escape will force them to face questions of flesh versus spirit, natural life versus eternal life, and physical death versus spiritual death. Family, faith, and courage are at the heart of this end-of-the-world adventure. Emily Hayes, author of the 2020 Realm Award winner for Best Book, Seventh City, as well as the Knights of Tin and Lead series, says, quote, Patton has created a redemptive tale of brotherhood, sacrifice, and hope, end quote. And we have another endorsement from Kate Stein, author of the Earthbound series, who says, quote, I really felt those Paralandra vibes throughout and the mix of tension with superbly done supernatural elements made me feel like I was reading a peer of Peretti or Decker. End quote. You can get that link in our show notes for The Withering by P.S. Patton, show notes for episode 124, or get all those details, plus the book cover and additional links at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. If we ever talk to Patrick Patton again, Zach, I might ask, hey, did you want to cross over? Like, how did your novel, did you want to help secular readers with your novel? Uh, I think that any reader would be helped by the appearance of a traveling magician on a doomed planet there. That's a very interesting element being mixed in. But let's go to chapter two for this episode. Uh, hey, I'm going to rewrite chapter titles on the fly here, Zach. We're getting a little bit bolder with the pantsing here, not just the plotting. I'm going to ask, how do some aspiring Christian authors 
want to help secular readers. That's chapter two here. That's chapter two. And I think we're moving from, uh, moving from the books that we found that are already out there to some of the ideas that we hear floating around. Again, they're often caught, not taught, among good Christians, faithful Christians who love Jesus and Jesus makes them happy and they want to share Jesus with their non-Christian neighbors. And they see, rightfully, that stories are a great way to do that. And if they're trying to make these stories, then obviously you know, their intent is to make people happy, or that ought to be their intent. Uh, but there's some ideas floating around that are rather unhappy ideas, and I think that's what we're going to talk about here. And we're going to use terms like winsome and some of the motifs that Christians have picked up from what are called seeker-friendly churches, uh, that the chief end of Christian evangelism ought to be to make Jesus, or even make the church, look better for the world. And uh, faithful, fantastical truth listeners know, Zach, that you and I, while we both endorse evangelism, whether it's with relationships or teaching or through the discipleship of stories, uh, we're a little skeptical about some of these tropes that our job is to improve or do PR for the church or make Jesus look better for people. Whereas a lot of evangelistic books sort of put the reader in the hot seat uh, through a secular, you know, non-Christian character that gets convicted of their sin and, you know, here's the gospel, praise or receive Christ. I would say that a lot of the books now are sort of putting the church in the hot seat, you know, the church, uh, putting, you know, Christians in, in kind of in the crosshairs a little bit. Okay. So there's like the secular movie version of this where, oh, the villain was the priest all along. <laughs> You know, I'd, I'll never forget this uh, movie Naomi and I watched. It was one of the Zorro spinoffs, and um, the the villain was the priest, and he had a uh, uh, he he kept saying he he was like a serial killer or something, and he kept saying, "I'm doing the Lord's work." Did he quote Bible like, verses while stabbing yeah, people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the southern accent, of course. Um, and it was just like no one believes this. Like this is such a twisted fantasy that that some screenwriter had that like oh okay okay you, you know that like oh christians are the ultimate villains um did they think it was a clever subversion really really good guy turns out to be really really bad right it, and it wasn't even that it was okay the scarlet letter did this well the 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 classic book right where you know the um this if are you familiar with the scarlet letter have you read that did you read that back in high school days okay so quick summary, this is about a kind of the Puritan era, I guess. And uh, it's, it's been about 30 years, so bear with me. The main character in this book, she has to wear a scarlet letter A that's like sewn into her dress for adultery, like she was caught in adultery. And, uh, you know, and it's all about kind of the fallout of her life in this small Puritan town. And you're wondering the whole time, well, who is the guy? You know, who, who's the guy that she committed adultery with? Well, lo and behold, it was the local pastor, and he had not sim- he had not sewn a a a letter A into his you know frock, but he had carved it into his chest, uh, and he was you know privately like uh, you know harming himself <laughs> as a act of spiritual discipline to try to atone for his sin, and so but he's kind of the villain because he sort of left her out you know. He, he 
hung her out to dry, basically. And, His and, humiliation and was private and hers was right. public. Okay, yeah. yeah. Because, of course, so, women are supposedly more to blame for this kind of sin uh, right. in, the, in the eyes of some false versions of Christianity. I, I don't think it was necessarily an unfair uh, portrayal of a of a bad pastor because there are bad pastors like absolutely okay, if you're a member of the SBC you know that pretty well right now that we've we've got we've had some wolves unfortunately uh, that that have come in the church and I and I mean very much in the criminal sense of the word uh, there there are people that have gone to jail uh, for criminal actions. Um, so yes, that happens, but, um, there's sort of a weird character of this that usually happens in, uh, these secular stories. There's a more recent one that's come out. Uh, I'm not going to give this author any airtime because, uh, he doesn't need it, but you hear terms like Christo fascism. Like what, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, jogging, you know, this, jogging. yeah, like in the Christo fascism future of, Christian nationalists taking over the country and forcing women to, you know, and just really bizarre it's kind of things. It's fun to make new words. It's yeah. fun to mash <laughs> them together and act like this is a formalized ideology rather than just the natural result of people doing an a la carte uh, worldview selection from the buffet uh, and yeah. not actually coming up with that. Hey, I'm going to believe this. I'm going to take elements of Christianity and elements of fascism. I'm going to mesh them together. Uh, you know, uh, shake well, uh, bake at 350 degrees for 45 minutes, and lo and behold, the Christian fascism. Yeah, uh, and that's I think that's kind of a consequence of either being very online or a little bit academical. Uh, yeah. When we're talking about stories, we're talking in the realm of even uh, less uh, less uh, direct content here. It's things are a lot more subjective, and I think that's uh, that's why it's difficult, and that's why Zach, you and I had a little difficulty playing this show, even because. I speak of ideas that are floating out there, you know, um, just just floating in the culture. Uh, you're not uh, taught these ideas. You know, it's not someone who came along and said, hey, like, I'm going to help secular read readers by making a Christian fantasy novel that does X. Like, it's just stuff that we inherit. And it's a hodgepodge of the seeker friendly impulse and a big assumption that we often don't name. And I'm going to try to name it here. The big assumption is that secular readers fear the church. And another big assumption that is made is this is Christian's fault. And mm. it may be, I mean, it may be in your scenario, like maybe you have a non-Christian friend who grew up Christian and, you know, had the abusive Scarlet Letter style pastor or something like these things do happen. We've got to be realistic where I absolutely abhor uh, what I absolutely abhor, though, and I think abhor is an appropriate word, is people who universalize. You know, they take their experiences or their friends' experience, and they say, "Well, this is this is true of everybody." And some aspiring Christian authors are susceptible to this idea because they think they're discovering a wider world, but they're bringing their assumptions from the niche evangelical world into it, including the assumption that secular readers fear the church. And another assumption, this is Christian's fault. And then a third assumption is it's my job to help the secular reader. And I'm going to do that in my story this way. And often, unfortunately, what you get is people who are being preachy in their stories, but they think they're being subtle, but, but they're not. They're just being preachy by trying to reflect the secular reader's values back to them, 
often including some sexual identity values that are not of God, that are not part of Christianity. And this goes pretty far. And I, I think that it's something that like, I would like to stand athwart and yell stop uh, here, but it, hopefully in a winsome way, if I can dare use the word winsome, uh, if for no other reason, we're talking about stories. We're not talking about people yelling on social media or going on political shows or writing articles or books about nonfiction stuff. Yeah, I, I think you made a, a good point there that people fear the church and it's Christian's fault. And so, yeah, I see that posture a lot in a lot of online discourse, like this is the church's fault. You know, we deserve our bad reputation. Um, the church is, or the the culture is right to fear the church. And uh, the culture, the church, note the yeah. uh, specifics getting hidden in the generalities. Like, again, speak of being realistic here. Like the, the discord, the generality is like, if I was editing this, it'd be like, who, who I'd like, please name some names. Like, can we go beyond common nouns and like talk about properly? Like, I want, I want to name people and places. Like, let's please get a little bit more specific about this because that's where fiction is. You know, fiction names people. Uh, there was X and he was born in this town. And then one day Y happened to him and, you know, uh, villain Z came along and took away the thing most dear to him. And now he must go on a quest to recover it. And. And there's a magic sword and he discovers he's the long lost orphan prince and you get specific right. in fiction. Uh, it kind of exposes some of the generalities in what we call nonfiction. Yeah. And I, I think that that impulse comes from a very limited vantage point of which secular people in, in the culture you're talking about or which non-Christians you're talking about, because you can talk to a lot of Muslims in this country that fear the culture way more than they fear the church. <laughs> you know, they, they fear the sexualization of children. They fear just the godlessness of business practices and just general life. Um, they, they fear secularization, you know, they, they don't, they don't fear religion. And so, uh, yeah, there's probably a lot more non-Christians than Muslims in our culture, but not everyone fears the same thing. And, I think when, when people say they fear the church, I think we also have to look under the hood a little bit. You know, it's like that Scooby-Doo meme where it's like, um, oh, I was hurt by the church. And then you pull off the hood. Let's and it's see like, who it is all the, along. Yeah. Let's see who it is. It's like, oh, the church wouldn't let me sleep with my girlfriend. Old you man know? winters. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, there's often ulterior motives. Um, and, and especially, you know, we live in a very, hostile media environment. Um, I was, uh, I was explaining to my kids recently how there are a lot of countries where they have state run media. And, uh, even, even now, if you look on the social media accounts of these, uh, you know, newspapers or TV stations from other countries, they have a little tag under there that, that big tech has added that says, you know, state run media. So, you know, that this is basically government propaganda. Uh, but a lot of people have said we, well, this is getting a little bit of field, but we live in a country where we have a media run state. <laughs> you know, we, we have like the whole state is run by the media. Like, so the, the politicians, the administration, the bureaucracy, like the media is really the dominant power in our culture. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people say that facetiously, but the point is our mass media has immense power over how we see the world. And it's often not true. You know, it, it often portrays people in ways that just aren't true. And so, but we, we're so saturated with it that we often take a lot of things for granted. And so 
yeah, we see these silly movies where the the priest is the serial killer saying he's doing, you know, the will of the Lord or God's work or whatever. And uh, people kind of swallow that and think, oh, that that's what Christian, you know, Christians just, uh, maybe they don't want to kill people, but they're just in it for the money and the power and, you know, that very postmodern kind of framework of looking at everything. Everything is about power. Um, and that is not how most people operate. That That is how a lot of people in mass media just happen to see the world. Right. I think that last part is a really good point uh, because when you talk about, you know, state-run media or um, any of those things, like some of my, uh, some of my jargon detector goes off just on behalf of a listener who's like, yeah, I grew up hearing that all the time. You know, yeah, the media was out to get Christians and, you know, they, it's not that they've come to disbelieve that or actively disbelieve that they're just tired of hearing it. And so they move on because there's only so much time. And by the way, it reminds them of a lot of other nastier beliefs that they'd just as soon be done with. I think it's not so much an issue of saying uh, that there is this you know, media control. It is literally a conspiracy. You know, there's a group out there that sends all the TV news stations and all the pundits and all the columnists, their talking points go after the Christians today about, this and such. It's more about that shared subculture I was talking about. Like Christians in evangelical environments tend to just assume certain things are true of the world. There's a group think that arises uh, and ideas from outside, you know, even if they are Christian ideas, uh, tend to fail. You know, they aren't able to penetrate the, uh, the, the protective shield around the subculture. Well, surely the same is true of what we might call mainstream media. And I got a hold of this idea actually by a book that released in the early 2000s by a former CBS newsman named Bernard Goldberg. It was called Bias. Uh, you know, just <laughs> one guess about exactly what that title was about. But he was, from what I remember, very fair in that he was he was disclaiming this idea of the conspiracy because he'd worked in journalism, he'd worked in TV news, and his view was like these are just ideas that develop and spread. It's not that there's a conspiracy; it's just how people work. You take the path of least resistance. And if certain assumptions about Christians or conservatives or whatever uh, take hold, uh, then they're going to stay taken hold for quite some time. It would take a, you know, a brand new TV station or organization uh, to take another approach. And how this affects uh, chapter two here uh, is that a lot of these ideas about, oh, people fear the church, frankly come from the Christians watching too much TV and not applying what he knows about evangelical subcultural groupthink to non-evangelical cultures like the news media or the uh, the websites or social media. Like there is just as much subculture there. They have just as much myths about Christians as we often have about them. And if anything, this should help us be winsome. Like, hey, like we're not so different from them. You know, Christians have messed up ideas about non-Christians. Like non-Christians also have messed up ideas about Christians. Do not accept these false ideas about Christians, particularly your neighbors in the church, all of them, uh, without questioning. Like question the beliefs you were brought up with, but also question the beliefs that other people are, are trying to transmit to you over social media or TikTok videos and things like that. And so I, I would, um, Zach, I need, to, I need to reopen the concession stand here. And not just get a few candy bars. Like I need to get a whole appetizer tray. Okay. Like here's some <laughs> chips and queso. Here's some chicken wings, you know, with blue cheese and ranch dipping sauce and some buffalo sauce and all kinds of things. You know, uh, here's some grilled asparagus, you know, here's a baked potato, just whatever. I'm just throwing concessions right and left. You get a concession and you get a concession. 
and you get a concession because I'm going to step on some toes. Okay. All right. Real quick. Um, aspiring Christian author. Uh, not everything you have heard about what the secular world thinks about the church is true. We are all individuals. We all have our different stories. And if you are going to be creative and imaginative and write stories about particular characters who are complex and three-dimensional, not just cardboard cutouts representing the church or the world, uh, then I think this is part of your training as a storyteller, that people are complex. We have different motives. There's a lot of gray areas here. And I think that ought to give the lie uh, to some of the unrealistic views of non-believers that some Christian creators have, including the unrealistic view uh, that uh, I'm the one who's going to reach out to the world. I'm, I'm the one, my story is going to help them in a way that no other story has. Chances are that has been tried. Uh, chances are you actually may be drifting back to an old view of the novel as a preacher. Uh, but instead of preacher, like you're trying to make a novel as a therapist. Uh, I don't think the job of a novel primarily is to do therapy for the non-believer any more than I think the novel made by a Christian should preach at the non-believer. Uh, as we talked about in our episode with LG McCary, I think the purpose of a novel ought to be discipleship, but that includes some preaching and includes some therapy. I guess you could call it that, but the novelist is not a therapist or a preacher. And if anything, I think the person who's trying to soothe the anxieties of the secular reader, uh, maybe just using that as a language for their own anxieties. In trying to help the secular reader, could the Christian creator really be trying to help herself or himself? And in that case, you know, maybe the novel you're working on uh, is a thought exercise. You know, maybe it's an attempt to heal yourself. And in that case, it probably ought not be a novel that you're trying to share with a lot of uh, secular readers at this point. Uh, Zach, you made a really good point, I think, just in our last episode about how the person who needs therapy ought to pay for it, uh, but it's a bit flawed in trying to get paid <laughs> for your own therapy. This gets a little bit, uh, I don't know if it's unethical in terms of therapist rules, uh, but it just seems a little weird here. And it goes back to that question of, are we actually trying to deal with the conditions of the real world, starting with the conditions of the real self? Yeah. And I definitely think there is a place for stories that try to reach readers who have had bad, legitimately bad experiences in church. As I said, Absolutely. there are former pastors that are in prison. Like there are some bad experiences yeah. people have with the church. I want more Christian heroes and I want, I want some professing Christian villains too. Yeah. Like, and I know I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving away my game here just a little bit, but I really think that more overt explorations of these things could really help Christian readers and secular readers. My concession stand, I guess, thing here, I guess, would be we have to temper our empathy in our inclusion or whatever with loyalty. Okay. So I, I think where a lot of these stories go wrong and a lot of these kind of mindsets go wrong is there's no loyalty to the bride of Christ. There's, there's loyalty to the, the secular neighbor above all. And this is something my, my pastor has talked about. Or, or the created construct of the secular yeah. neighbor, TM. Right. Not a specific right. person, but an abstract. So my, my pastor has talked about this a lot, that all the commands to love one another, those are given to Christians to love one another Christians. And so we have to love other Christians like far and above where we, we think we should have to. But we, we have to have loyalty to the church, first of all. Second of all, we can't adopt the world's attitudes to reach the world. And this was from another pastor at another church I went to uh, right when we 
uh, moved to Austin. But we went to this church that I considered very seeker friendly. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll still check it out because I, look, that, that touches part of my heart. I, I, I get it. Um, I get the whole seeker sensitive thing. I, I, I do. Uh, because I, I very much have a heart for people that are kind of outside the fold. I was someone that was outside the fold. I got saved through Young Life. Young Life reaches kids that wouldn't darken the door of a church. Um, I was going to church, but only because my mom was dragging me to church. I didn't want to go to church. Um, never really had great experiences. At, well, had had a mixture of experiences, I'll just say. Uh, but Young Life was where I heard the gospel. And it was, you know, Young Life is a very unique atmosphere, I'll just say. It reaches a lot of non-church kids. So I, I get it. But this one church I went to right when we moved here, uh, the pastor made a mention of a bumper sticker he saw in the parking lot that morning. It said, Lord, save us from your followers. And, you know, and he kind of brought it up and everyone kind of laughed. And it's like, okay, that's kind of funny. We all know the, you know, the cringe Christian aunt or, or whatever. Or yeah, the ladies of the church kind of who fought by. over the, uh, the tablecloth <laughs> colors, you know, for the social. Yeah. 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 So we, we all know that person that we're like, oh gosh, that person. But he spent the next like five minutes kind of rebuking that. And, Amen. and I don't Good remember pastor. everything he said, Good but pastor. he's like, he's like, look, you can't call yourself uh, a part of the bride of Christ and reject the other parts of the bride of Christ. Like you, you, you can't just say you're better than all those Christians. I mean, th- think about Jesus parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I was that, just, I was just doing so. Who's yep. the bad guy? Yep. The bad guy is like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. And uh, you know, th- there was this classic Buzzfeed or something video a number of years ago. It's like I'm a Christian, but, and it's oh, like, but I'm not all so these horrible cringe. stereotypes. Yeah, yes, and that's cringe. That's the word. There is a lot of this kind of content that is cringe in its own way. The same way that we've seen cringe, preachy Christian movies and books, and you know, just stop the cringe, everyone. <laughs> but I, I think the key is it's that loyalty. It's like have the loyalty to believe the best about other Christians, to, to believe the best about the church and don't try so hard to win people that you're willing to throw people under the bus and accept the false excuses people give about why they're not Christians. And don't, you know, I I think the trap that's easy to fall into here is trying so hard to get, to get a seat at the cool kids table. uh, I think it goes back to a foundational belief we have at Lorehaven about the chief end of man, which is that phrase from the famous Christian confession. I think an assumption that some Christians make is that the chief end of man is to evangelize. That's our prime directive as Christians. Uh, And then, you know, one may overcorrect and say, well, no, the, the chief end of man is to do the cultural mandate, you know, to go out and have families, to be based and trad and wholesome. Uh, and to, you know, make a profit and uh, be good stewards of the world and make art and things like that. Like, I mean, I accept both of those as secondary ends of man, uh, in uh, succession and, uh, you know, relating to one another in our realistic world now, but the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which should put a lot of these things in perspective. And that's why I led earlier with the idea that Christians ought to want to share stories with secular readers to help them. And the point of helping them is to help them be happy. And the only way to be happy is, of course, God himself, uh, the source of all happiness, uh, which is also called joy, biblically speaking. So it really is about happiness. But if you're stuck on healing, you know, the author is stuck on healing, trying to heal themselves. 
uh, then that can lead to, like you said, Zach, you know, disloyalty. And oddly enough, even when I say that, I think of like a loyalty oath or the abuse of the ideal of loyalty. Mm-hmm. You know, the the woman who's in a loveless or abusive marriage who said, well, you need to be loyal, you know, even though he's abusing you or he's cheating on you. Like, No, we're not talking about that. That is an abuse of loyalty. Like loyalty would actually involve separating from that person and calling them to repentance in a biblical way. Uh, the loyalty I'm thinking of is actually best exemplified by a recent real life news story. And I think I'll go ahead and just name the person there. Uh, and then also the uh, the Disney movie, The Rocketeer. So I'll do the real one first. Um, uh, Speaker of the House in the United States, Nancy Pelosi, uh, which is an elected position. She is from California. She uh, belongs to the Democrat Party and has for many decades. Uh, she is, I think, oh, she holds so many unchristian beliefs. It's not just a matter of political parties. Like She is uh, probably not a Christian person in any meaningful sense. So I would disagree with this, uh, this, this person, this, this uh, candidate, you know, an elected representative in the United States. However, she recently took a trip to Taiwan, uh, which is a, um, an island off the coast of China. Um, who do you think is going to censor us here if we determine uh, where we're going to identify Taiwan <laughs> here? Are we going to blur out the patch on our uh, flight jacket like Tom Cruise? Uh, actually, that didn't happen. And Top Gun Maverick did really well. We <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Okay. So I disagree with uh, U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, D. California. Okay. But. Nancy Pelosi goes to Taiwan, and at least for a while, there was some threats about, well, we're going to shoot her plane out of the sky because we don't want her going to Taiwan and, you know, messing things up with, uh, with China. Like, China doesn't, uh, has a particular view on Taiwan, and, and Nancy Pelosi apparently is showing some solidarity with Taiwan there. Um, I'm going to be loyal to my fellow citizen and an elected legislator, even though it's not from my state, Nancy Pelosi, even though I disagree with her. Uh, not just because I don't want anybody's plane shot out of the sky, uh, but because this is a fellow American. You know, I, I, I disagree with her so profoundly on many issues, but uh, she's still one of, in a sense, my people. Uh, and if you attack from outside and you know, if you're, you're an enemy or acting like an enemy, uh, then I'm going to show, I think, appropriate loyalty, at least to that extent. That's example one. Example two is the rocketeer. And I'll have to give away the ending here. So spoiler alert, uh, it's about a, um, a fighter pilot in kind of the Depression era who finds a jetpack, an experimental jetpack uh, from we Howard Hughes. We just watched Hughes. that as a family. Oh, I love funny you bring it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lacey introduced it to me. It's a great movie. Um, yeah. And, uh, and he, he finds the jetpack. He ends up being like kind of a proto superhero. Uh, and there's a lot of old Hollywood stuff. There's a lot of aviation stuff going on. It's really fun. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, Timothy Dalton's uh, Errol Flynn type actor uh, ends up being um, a Nazi collaborator. Uh, turns out all along, you know, he was he was the bad guy all along. You know, it wasn't the priest; it was the actor. Uh, there's <laughs> lots of great jokes there. T- Timothy it was Dalton Hollywood. Yes, it was. It was big. Yeah. So first, that's kind of fun. You know, that's that's a little bit based, right? You know, uh, and by the end though, you find like there's these hired gangsters who are trying to get a hold of the jetpack, and uh, there's this glorious conclusion as you've just seen, Zach, where uh, at the end uh, you've got this this giant uh, airship. Uh, this this blimp, uh, dirigible, whatever you call it, that's rising over uh, the skies of old Hollywood, and uh, uh, Timothy Dalton's character, uh, the the swashbuckling and genuinely threatening actor, is is about to get away. Uh, and meanwhile, on the ground, you have this shootout between the cops and robbers. <laughs> it's a gangster movie going on the ground, and then somehow uh, everybody, uh, it, 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 you get wind of the fact that oh, um, there's actually Nazis going on. They're like there's an actual German airship up there, and like they're about to get away. And suddenly the cops and the robbers and the heroes 
all turn on the Nazis and the, you know, the gangsters are like, Hey, you know, I may be a gangster, but I'm an American, you know, I'm a patriot. Um, gangster still needs to go to the American jail, you know, brought in in cuffs by the Patriot cops. But mm. it's a fun, feel good moment where even if you've got gangsters, you know, they still have loyalty to an American ideal beyond themselves and don't mind fighting alongside the cops. That's the ideal of loyalty. I'm thinking there, even though afterwards, you know, the cops maybe need to drag in the patriotic gangster. Yeah, well, uh, going back in a minute to the idea of winsomeness, because <laughs> this is man, we had to go we, there. Yeah, we had to go there. It's just a huge online big Eva, whatever buzzword right now. Well, winsomeness will help secular <laughs> readers, right? Because they've only ever yeah. seen nasty Christians or political compromise or cheap, ugly, preachy Christian stories. So you got to yeah. be winsome, and then you might win some to the Lord. You win some, you lose some. I don't know. You know, I I think the. Uh, the, the good impulse here is, look, uh, we ourselves shouldn't be a stumbling block to the gospel. Okay, totally. Like, the messenger should not uh, be offensive. Great. Uh, but the reality is, the gospel is a stumbling block to some people. Uh, the gospel is offensive to some. It's the stench of death to some people, is what Paul says. And so... The danger is thinking, well, if I can do things right, then I can make Jesus less offensive and more attractive to everyone. It, it's all those other Christians who weren't winsome enough. You know, like that, that is so dangerous because like you're just trying to make Jesus look cool. We have to think about so often uh, both the Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter talked about false teachers who were using flattery. You know, they were trying so hard to be likable that they were just telling people what their itching ears wanted to hear. And that is, again, it's the real danger. It, it's taking what people say they want and determining that's actually what they need. You know, what, what they say they want is their deepest need, and that's what I have to meet. And the heart deceives us. You know, we, we want things that are bad for us. We want things that are not what God wants for us. And so to try to... Uh, kind of placate those desires in people um, or to validate, you know, the fears they have, which may be illusions, to be honest, or, or it may be too much of an extrapolation. You know, that's not helpful either because you're, you're presenting a false picture of what the church really is. Um, I saw a great quote earlier. Uh, this is someone on Twitter that said, uh, this is Jay Chase Davis. He said, quote, I grew up in the Baptist church, dot, dot, dot. He says, so many uh, who are now Presbyterians and Anglicans intro their story this way. It's easy to dunk on Baptists, uh, but it's incredible how dunk God up. has used Baptist churches in America to raise up godly pastors and theologians. So, you know, it's that whole like throwing the baby out with the bathwater thing. It's like, well, okay, have, have there been some crummy experiences people have in Baptist church? Sure, I could tell you some bad experiences I've had, but I'm not going to just dunk on Baptist churches at large. Uh, I'm not going to dunk on <laughs> Baptists. Yeah. And so I, I think it's the, um, you know, I, I think the impulse here is, uh, you made me think of it earlier. It's, it's, it's trying to be the good girl who's going to reach the bad boy. Yes. Uh, that, yes. <laughs> and I, I just think, oh, okay, well, first of all, I have some humility. Maybe other people have tried to reach the bad boy. Uh, maybe you're not 
maybe you're not going to be the person that does it. Maybe your job is just to plant another seed or it's just to water a seed. I, I got to be careful here because I, I sort of straddle the fence with a lot of the, the Calvinism and Arminianism stuff, but and I don't want to get into that. But I think that ultimately the impulse here is thinking, I'm going to be the one that leads this person to Christ. It's all up to me. I've got to do it through being, you know, winsome or, or being whatever or being bold. And that, that, that doesn't typically work out very well. Uh, we, we talked about this before that what we should always aspire to more than anything else is faithfulness, not, not, not the results that we want, but, but the, the process that we commit ourselves to in telling stories and communicating should, our, our goal should be faithfulness. Well-spoken faithfulness. Let's leave that word ringing in our ears as we move to chapter three. We've already talked about chapter one, about Christian novels that have tried to cross over into general markets to help secular readers. Then point two, we're talking about like maybe some flawed approaches that Christian uh, creators have to trying to help secular readers. So even though this may be a shorter segment because we've mainly opened this up for discussion, we do want to end a little bit more positively with some suggestions. How can Christian novels help secular readers in a more realistic and biblical sense? And Zach here, I think it starts with faithfulness. And uh, particularly if someone is a Christian uh, novelist or, or I'm picking up a Christian novel, uh, I'm looking for signs that the person who made this book has been faithful, uh, not just faithful to make a great story that is uh, you know, familiar yet original, you know, a lot of paradoxes built in there, you know, following some conventions for writing, but also doing some new things with the genre and the hero or the heroine and the quest and all of that. But I'm also looking for if this person claims, okay, well, if this person claims Christianity, you know, if this book is being marketed, you know, by Christians and maybe to Christians, I am looking for, is this person going to be a faithful uh, citizen uh, of the kingdom? Uh, Is this person not going to have a chip on their shoulder and put their faith claim in flux? as I'm reading this story, uh, which almost certainly manifests, by the way, in preaching moments against the church or against religious types in the story. Uh, it, it almost always comes out from what I've seen, uh, just as it came out, you know, with the, with the older Christians, you know, thought that they needed to defend the church, you know, whether it's offending or defending the church, either way, I don't think secular readers are helped by that issue taking over the novel. But I'm also asking, has this person been faithful to the simple call to tell a good story? Uh, to present the world realistically, to look at our world through the lens of a fictional world so that we can see our world more clearly, ourselves more clearly through the eyes of another person. That's the kind of empathy. Like, I I don't want to read a novel and try to empathize with a secular reader out there somewhere. I want to empathize with the character Uh, and not even the novelist so much. Like, I think the novelist should uh, decrease so that the fictional character should increase, at least as a creative exercise, as you're reading. That's the kind of story I'm looking for. And I've used the word realistic a few times. And as I'm looking for books, I wanted them to be realistic about the world. That's why we spent so much time in chapter two, trying to call out some of the facts about you know, myths that are spread about Christianity or the fact that people are individuals and not just a monolithic, the church versus a monolithic, the culture. Uh, there's individuals with specific interests and character complexities here, and that's realistic. And another realistic element that I think Christian novels and novelists in their rhetoric uh, should recognize is that our real world has trendy sins that many general market fiction titles are embracing on purpose. 
that's absolutely a thing that is going on. It is not just alarmist right-wing media talking it up. It is a not-so-secret agenda. And I think that's going to affect the journey of the Christian novelist who's trying to cross over and help secular readers. What are you willing to do to help the secular readers? Uh, I dare to mention uh, that there is a, a, a book series we're aware of, and we in fact talked about in Fantastical Truth, where I've heard from a couple of people that there's some endorsement of very ungodly relationships uh, marketed as love in book three of the series. I need to verify this, but if so, like that is a little bit disappointing uh, to see that. But at the same time, I might recognize, especially if it's a general market publisher, well, maybe this was you know a condition. Like I don't know. Uh, I don't want to judge anyone's heart there. But the fact is, is that these trendy sins are being institutionalized in the general market. And so that's going to be an issue for the Christian novelist who wants to help the secular readers be realistic about the world out there. They're not going to be friendly to Christians if you say anything against uh, their popular religion of sexualityism. Another thing we've already covered is being realistic about the church. Yeah, I think we need to have some church villains. Uh, I've actually written a few myself. Uh, maybe you'll get to read them someday. Uh, but I think we need to be realistic about the mission of the church. It is divinely ordered by Christ himself, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's going to be terrors mixed in. There's going to be goats mixed in. Uh, he will sort them out, as the version of Jesus from the chosen will say. You know, just round them up. My father will sort them out, or I will sort them out, whatever the quote goes. It's a biblical paraphrase there. That's up to God. All you can do is be faithful with what you see in front of you. And that faithfulness includes faithfulness and loyalty to the church, uh, to your local church, uh, to the capital C church. Like, stop throwing the church under the church bus uh, in order to <laughs> appease the secular readers. That may be the money quote right there. Um, <laughs> Or stop throwing the church people under the school bus anymore and you throw the public people under the church bus. Like Nobody needs to be trapped up in those wheel wells, okay? A couple of other points here. I think we need to be realistic about people's tragic backstories. Uh, there's not a monolithic V culture that fears the church and they're right to do so because it's the Christian's fault and it's my job as, a as the Christian storyteller to help the secular reader. There's mixed motives for people fearing the church. Mixed is a really good word here. It's almost neutral. Uh, you may fear the church for a good reason, uh, because of a bad experience, or maybe they didn't connect with you very well if you were a shy child, or maybe there was some real abuse and harassment going on. Uh, church back home it is not just an accusation, it's real. Uh, that, that thing can haunt you, floating around in your nightmares. Uh, but there's also the fact, as I said earlier, like people do, the sinner's going to sin. Like, that's just a fact. Let's be realistic about the world. You know, tragic backstory included, people do want to sin, and sometimes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Could it also be said that a appropriate fear of the church or local church or even a pastor or an authority figure is the beginning of wisdom? It's not all They don't all turn out to be psychopathic serial killers, guys. Like sometimes even the Catholic priest is a really good guy who just wants to help reconcile you to God the Father. Uh, through Christ the Son. He may have some weird ways of doing it in the eyes of Protestants, but he may not be some secret agent of Satan or whatever the horror movies tell you. Like, There's actually good church leaders out there, and they will also induce fear in people, uh, an appropriate fear that's really more like a, a holy dread or respect, uh, just as God commands. So his church leaders may also uh, have that effect on people. 
Uh, my final point there is that I think uh, Christians who hope or Christian novels that hope to help secular readers need to be realistic about eternal matters. Uh, a lot of the stories I've read uh, tend to put eternity as like more in the background. You know, it's almost like a romance novel that makes it all about the journey toward the altar or the journey towards a relationship. Uh, you know, whereas Christian faith like, would take it all the way to, you know, where you're growing old together and you've got, you know, grandchildren and great grandchildren, you know, the adventure continues even beyond that initial story. And so does the Christian adventure. Like, I would love to see more Christian novels that are reckoning with eternal things, reckoning with our eternal destiny. That's why we talk so much about the new heavens and new earth and resurrection on, uh, at, on this podcast and at Lorehaven. And I think that also needs to include some things to which you alluded earlier, Zach, that our real world needs to reckon with the reality of God's wrath that is poured out on sinners. Uh, everybody is included in that apart from Christ. And you cannot soft sell that belief without going back to uh, kind of that sentimentalist view of Christians of yore. Uh, you've got, uh, I think it was actually uh, Thomas Umstead Jr. was talking about this. I forget if it was his podcast or uh, our conversation with him. It really is about, are you going to recognize the reality of hell? Or are you going to get really, really nervous about talking about H-E double hockey sticks, even if it's in the original biblical context? Uh, Christians, I think, don't have that option. Like, we almost need to work that into casual conversation. Like, some people go to Rikers Island, you know, to serve out life sentences, and a lot of people go to hell. That's just, that's just a fact. That's just a fact about the world. We're not trying to shock. We're not trying to be grimdark. It's just simple fact. And yet we also need to be realistic about the fact that God will reward people for eternity who have trusted in Christ. And I think more stories just need to reckon with all of these, or else I don't think we're going to help secular readers. So I assume that, yes, Christian novels should. Uh, I just think that some of our ideas about help have been very poorly defined apart from scripture. Okay. Just tagging off that last point you made there. You know, we explain the reality of heaven and hell very, in a very simple way to our children, which is heaven is about Jesus and the people that want to be with him. The people that are going to be in heaven are the ones that can't wait to see Jesus and spend forever with him. And so that, that just makes it very, very simple. Yes. Um, now, now, again, I don't want to get into the sovereign God's sovereignty and salvation, all this kind of other stuff. Uh, I, I feel that creeping in. But, but the point is that people that don't want to be with him won't be. We, we make it about that rather than how oh, heaven's for good people or, or whatever, however you define good. Or, man, hell seems really harsh. But it's like, well, uh, do you think people that hate Jesus should have to spend eternity with him? Like, do you think that's fair? You know, we could, we could get into all that. But um, going back to your larger point, I, I think realistic is the right tack here because I think the trap that a lot of stories are falling into nowadays is trying so hard to be relevant. And the problem with making relevant the chief end of a story is it can very become very easily become desperate. <laughs> it can yeah. become flattery. We're back to the cringe word. <laughs> yeah, it, beca- it becomes yeah. cringy. Um, but the, the point of realistic is to tell the truth. So, you know, if, if your if your aim is be realistic, tell the truth, that's going to be relevant to the people that need to hear that truth. Now it's funny, just as a side note that we're talking about fiction needing to be realistic, but that is, I was just thinking that is that, how yeah. fiction should be, right? Well, even fiction fantasy. should feel believable. Yeah, fantasy mm-hmm. should feel believable. In fact, fa- fantasy often needs to feel more realistic. Like it ought not have this polished gleaming sheen 
uh, in the cinematic version of it, you know, the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars were praised for feeling very realistic, uh, despite the fact that they're set in these far flung fantasy worlds. So I agree. Uh, it's, it's a paradox, but the more uh, fantastical you get, you know, the more you're looking like a carnival ride with all the flashing lights and, you know, the wrong kind of concession stands like, no, like a, a, a realistic fantasy world is going to have flora and fauna that behave in many ways similar to our world and people who behave in many ways similar to real world people. And I, I would just go back to, I, I think stories that aim for that are going to make the right impression on people. I think stories that, that set out to change someone's mind uh, rarely do. I, I think people mostly read, read stories and books that they already sort of agree with. Um, so I, I think taking that approach doesn't really work. Um, and I, and I think, you know, having this attitude of like, oh, you need this book, uh, like the, there's something wrong with you. You need this book. I, I think that just puts people's walls up rather than like, oh, I love this book and I think you'll love it too. Um, and, but having a book that, that is aiming at that, that like, this is a story you're going to love. Um, and you'll love it because it tells the truth. I think that is, you really can't lose, uh, when that is the approach. Now, this is sort of a tangent, but this idea of realism, you know, realistic about the world that we live in, about the kind of competing forces that's going on. I I think this is where a lot of Christians are having a lot of debates right now. Um, there was just a big blow up yesterday online about, uh, some articles from the gospel coalition. Um, you know, one of which said, well, uh, you know, you, you should affirm the right of your neighbors to live without fear. Uh, even if they live in some marital arrangement, you think the Bible, uh, does not approve of. Yeah, again, define and fear. Like, what, what kind of fear are we yeah. talking about here? Yeah. And, it, and it's kind of like you said, well, should we tell people they can live without fear of the Lord or like without fear of, uh, living apart from his created order? Um, I think there's some weird ideas people have now about like, oh, fear is the greatest enemy. Shame is the greatest enemy. Well, like, it is the mind killer. Uh, it's the little <laughs> death that brings about devastation or however that goes, you know, but the litany from Dune, not the yes. gospel folks. Like there is a good fear that is the mind yes. freer because you are freed to recognize the truth uh, yes. that there is and, divine justice and uh, God's vengeance against sinners. Well, fear, shame, guilt. I mean, Yes, in a sense, these are enemies, but they're ultimately all caused by sin. Sin is the is the true enemy. It's not, you know, fear, shame, and guilt. These are the indicators that there is a sin problem. It, it's like the check engine light on your dashboard, yes, uh, which you shouldn't ignore. Which uh, unfortunately, I have to deal with uh, this week with my car. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, this other quote uh, from a different article in the gospel coalition. This is, uh, from a long interview with, uh, some folks and this is Sam Albury talking, which I generally like Sam, but I, I take a little issue with this line where he says, quote, we don't live in a moralistic age where we need to prove people to be sinners. We live in an anxious age where we need to prove to people they're worth something. So yeah, I, maybe I think his this, congregation, but mm, depends on where you look. Right. And it's like, well, okay, I'd be interested in hearing the backstory of that. Uh, but I think this is, this is exactly what we are debating right now in the evangelical world is what is the primary force operating on people? Is it this sense that I'm a sinner or this sense that I'm unworthy and I'm unloved? Um, 
you see all these expressions now like, oh, you are loved, you are worthy, you are enough. And, and I guess that's coming from that similar mindset of, oh, that's what people need to hear. Um, now, he says some more in this that I, I don't entirely disagree with. Like, well, you got to go back to Genesis 1, not just start with Genesis 3. Talk about Agreed. how God created people and why, and we're creating his image, and then we fell. So sure, yes, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes we got to look under the hood. It's like, okay, we live in an anxious age, um, and people are desperate to feel they're worth something. I mean, that's the, the Instagram phenomenon of how many likes did I get? How, how many likes did she get? How many likes did he get? You know, who's paying attention to me? And okay, people are anxious about their self-worth, but there's also some narcissism at work there. We, we have to confront that. Uh, we have to confront the reality that, you know what, we're giving ourselves to this really broken and busted and exploitative mass media system. And maybe we should pull back from that. Uh, let's not ignore that force in our lives. But ultimately, what do we want people to do? Do we want people to be their true selves? You know, is, is be true to yourself, find your, your inner true, whatever, like, no, Christ says, take up your cross and deny yourself. Like Jesus says, count the cost of being a disciple. Uh, now, yes, we're saved by grace. Absolutely. But the Christian life is one of denying yourself, not simply being true to your every innermost desire. So, you know, I, I think we have to define some terms here about what the Christian life is that we're, we're calling people to. Agreed. I think that a, a, an application here, and I, I dare to uh, speak again to folks who want to create uh, you know, fantasy worlds for Christ in order to help secular readers. Uh, the metaphor I stumbled upon when I was on a panel uh, at a, a writer's conference, I think it was Realm Makers, was world building, uh, which is the jargony term uh, that authors used for the supporting material and the original ideas that they have, uh, often kind of a series Bible that they reference. Uh, that's not necessarily on the pages in the novel, but it's the it's the material that they have behind the scenes. You know, they may have a notebook or a bunch of other files on their computer or something uh, that gives the rules of the world. You know, name spellings and maps, characters, you know, eye colors, like stuff like that. Uh, that maybe the reader doesn't need to know, but the author needs to know in order to create a realistic world in the actual book. And I think that deeper gospel foundation needs to go into the world building. I'm not saying put you know, Jesus call or any of these debates or any of those things like on the page. But I really think it, it, it is about how deeply is the Christian creator rooted in biblical reality, in their own world building? Uh, what are the moral assumptions you have about the world, about people's uh, reasons for rejecting Christ, uh, about the reality of God's wrath, about the reality of grace, about the reality of villains in the church and villains in the world, villains on every side? like. That sort of thing needs to go into the creator's world building, that is worldview. And it also needs to go, I think, into the world building of the fictional novel. Uh, and, and I think that, like, I may risk saying this, but simply because there's so much influence, uh, particularly from uh, the general market or, or secular fantasy going on right now, there's so much push uh, to legitimize and endorse and accept as a new gospel. Uh, certain religious ideas, like I think it might help to specifically push against that, not in the book itself, because now you've just made a track disguised as a novel, ew, 
But <laughs> for example, let's say uh, like I've seen a few Christian creators uh, or you know aspiring authors say, well, I want to have a novel with a same sex attracted character, which is kind of cool because some, you know, there's a lot more of our Orthodox Jesus loving neighbors who struggle with same sex attraction than we know, you know, and it's not that they're suppressing this, but like who, who you know, maybe you don't want to be known by that. You know, maybe it's something that's under control. You know, you're, you're married or you're, you're living a celibate life or whatever. Like you love Jesus more than this particular temptation to sin, but this temptation or, or other struggles that people have, like including, you know, mental illness or trauma or things like that. Like, I think these are things that you can work through, uh, if not in the novel itself, then at least in the world building. And so we assume that there's, you know, all, all the, uh, all the work that the creator does is right there on the surface, but there ought to be a lot more underneath the surface. Unfortunately, I think the stuff going under the surface is the assumptions we talked about, the unrealistic assumptions. I don't think these are going to help secular readers. I think we need to help secular readers in ways that actually help them, but they're according to a biblical world building that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, I would just bring it back to the way, the best way to help secular readers is to love them through a story that they enjoy that also tells the truth <laughs> because it's it's very loving to tell the truth and you tell the truth through a realistic world with you know if if, uh, if this is a world that God exists and his laws exist and work on the world then you're going to show how those uh, moral choices play out. Now, it may not be a explicitly Christian story, and that's fine. It may not have explicitly Christian uh, characters or language, and that's that's fine as well. But I think that a a loving story will tell the truth. Uh, not again, not being on the nose, not being preachy, but how the story resolves itself, uh, how uh, consequences play out of certain choices, um, and ultimately what it points people towards and it, and it points them towards a, a greater reality that they live in. And that's, what's so great about fantasy and sci-fi. We, we point, you know, we explore a fantastical world that points people away from uh, a lot of the petty things that we get bogged down in, in the real world. And it kind of helps sort of take those, those blinders off. And so that's, that's what I think the best way to help readers is. Amen to that. I think we're finally moving toward the close. Zach, this has been a long episode, but I think appropriately so. Uh, this ended up being a lot more foundational issue uh, than I'd originally planned. And I, I, I think that that's good. Like, that's the stuff we want to do at Fantastical Truth. Uh, an episode like this calls for as sensitive an engagement as we can. Uh, I guess just in closing, I, I would say that, I mean, we've talked a lot about Christian novels helping secular readers. Like, I, I still have a heart, not, not only personally, but for others out there uh, who may be thinking, you know, like, I, I don't think I'm trying to mainly reach secular readers. Like, I don't think that's my purpose. I don't think where this story is going. And I, I just I really want to, again, like issue a call and an endorsement for Christian made novels that are basically made for Christians, you know, not uh, coded non-Christian characters. Like, I would love to see more Christian characters or coded Christian characters, you know, who are faithful saints in your fantasy world or your sci-fi world uh, who are not just struggling with the basics of faith or, you know, backsliding or anything like that, uh, but are struggling with very realistic uh, Christian struggles, you know, uh, marriage and family struggles, you know, career struggles. Like, what do you do when there are villains in the church? Like stuff like that is very, very interesting to me. 
Uh, and I think that you can do that in fantasy or sci-fi in ways that I can even a contemporary novel could not do. So I, I just want to uh, in, endorse that approach as well. And I think that uh, that kind of a, a counterintuitive truth here, and it actually goes back to some of the novels in the 90s that we were talking about at the top of this show, a novel that is made by Christians for Christians that goes to places beyond just uh, y'all need to get saved out there. Um, non-Christians will access this novel one way or another. Uh, they'll get hold of it. Uh, and I think that kind of repeats the advice of the Apostle Paul uh, to the Corinthian church. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 14 when he's talking about ordered worship services. Like, you know, there's tongues and some messy stuff in there, you know, spiritual gifts that we won't get into now. But the point is that the Apostle Paul says all things must be done decently and in order. He's calling for creative organization of the local church service, even if you got tongues going on, so that if a non-believer wanders in, if a, if a non-believer is there, and the, by the way, the Apostle Paul assumes that non-believers will show up, but he doesn't assume that the entire service is made for them. He says, okay, if you keep things decently and in order and not just going crazy with the gifts, then the non-Christian will walk in and say, God is truly among you. And then, oh, what do you know? Surprise. The Christian Worship Act has helped the secular onlooker uh, by focusing on Christians and order, creative order for the glory of God. And that seems to help unbelievers. Incidentally, the Apostle Paul promises. Uh, but if you make it all about the unbelievers, then I think you're confusing the means for the end. And I think I do see some Christian creators who are like, they want to skip past the Christian neighbor in front of them who could really benefit from the story. Uh, and go straight for the secular market because that's far out there in the distance and it's more abstract and it looks real pretty. Uh, but what you're more doing, lucrative. It's, well, it could be more lucrative, yeah, depending on how professionally you want to take this. Uh, but it, it seems to me that people don't want to hike up the hill uh, and instead, you know, they're looking at Everest. Like, yeah, there's some people who are called to go up to Everest, but you've got to train with the smaller hills, folks. You know, uh, mm -hmm. don't uh, ignore the church in order to go into the world, uh, just like you would not ignore Christ in order to focus on the needs of your secular neighbor. And I'll just end with uh, this verse from Galatians 1.10. It says, for am I now trying to persuade people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So I think that, you know, beyond just what you think your book needs to do for a secular reader, make the aim to please Christ, to, to be a servant of Christ through your story. Amen. Zach, I'm going to put up some of these leftover concessions. I put the lids back on the queso dish and stick them in the fridge. Uh, do you <laughs> mind going over to the comm station and seeing what's arrived there uh, from the YouTube channel, actually? Yes. Yes, this is from uh, Nina Sloan, who commented all the way back on episode seven. And this was a great interview that we did with Brian Gadawa. That episode is called, How Does Jesus Define and Redeem His Gift of Imagination? Uh, really great conversation we had with Brian. That's been one of our top episodes uh, on this podcast. Now, what's funny is YouTube is a much smaller slice of our audience. And so, uh, and, and Nina sort of points that out here in a funny way. She says, quote, uh, this gives one much to think about. I enjoyed it. I'm a little surprised that only 20 people watched it and no one left a comment. I just found it. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Nina. And yes, uh, YouTube is probably, I don't know, 10% or something of where we get listens on this podcast, but Hey, I'm glad you found it, Nina. I'm glad for the other 20 people that have uh, been able to listen to this episode there that 
that's encouraging to me that uh, the, the YouTube channel is serving that purpose. Again, this is a really easy way for you, our listener, to uh, or for you to tell a friend, hey, you can you can listen to this whole podcast. If you've got a smart TV, just find Lorehaven on the YouTube app on your smart TV. And uh, I'm glad that uh, that gave Nina a lot to think about. If you've had something to think about from this episode or another episode, even all the way back to our original episodes, please send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or feel free to comment on any of our social media channels. Zach has been faithful to catch up with the uploads there on YouTube. Uh, Variations on a theme there. Uh, You may find a smaller slice of the Lorehaven world, almost a subculture within a subculture there on YouTube, but there is much more at lorehaven.com. Meanwhile, at Lorehaven, uh, you can subscribe for free and get uh, all of our podcast updates and or reviews that post on Fridays and or articles that we post uh, as you choose. Uh, We're there to help explore fantastical stories for God's glory, even beyond the podcast. That also includes our Lorehaven Guild, the exclusive Discord server only for free Lorehaven subscribers. Elijah David, one of our staff creators, has started a new book quest, a most august book quest here. Uh, going into the new school season for N.D. Wilson's Middle Grade Fantasy 100 Cupboards. Uh, That's ongoing throughout the month of August. He's been busy posting questions in there, and you can join simply by signing up at lorehaven.com. Put your email address in there, and we will send you the super secret portal code where you can uh, join the guild, uh, engage in some more snacks, and go on a book quest with a quest party. Uh, Eli also recently reviewed 100 Cupboards, which was originally published in 2007. So we're doing retro reviews here and there, but also doing new reviews uh, every Friday or almost every Friday during busy summers of the best Christian-made fantastical novels we can find. Elijah David, by the way, has been on a roll uh, just this past uh, Friday as our episode releases. Uh, he wrote his fifth article in a series about the Chronicles of Narnia. This one focuses on the horse and his boy and how uh, the mountaintop encounter with Aslan uh, helped show Eli a wonderful example of God's sovereignty. You were talking earlier about God's sovereignty, Zach, and this is one of the pictures that I have in my head of what that actually looks like when our Savior is at the back of all the stories. We have an article in development right now. Uh, don't have a title for you or even a release date yet, but I can tell you the subject. It is a back-to-school book list for families. So this is a new generation of articles we're hoping to kick off at Lorehaven to really help readers in families and homeschool communities and other communities find the best Christian-made stories for their kids. Uh, We're going to collect some of our reviews and also go out and get uh, quotes from people who've read and loved these stories. So once I've got more information about that, we will uh, talk about it here at the end of the next Fantastical Truth episode. Of course, you can go to lorehaven.com and check to see if it is published uh, by the time you hear this episode. Next on Fantastical Truth. Okay, uh, let's admit something. One last grab from the concession stand, I suppose. Uh, it's been uh, frequented this episode. We must, we must admit uh, that even in this show and in recent episodes, Zach and I have sounded a little more negative about popular culture, not so secret agendas and all that sort of thing. It's often justified. It's true. We're trying to be realistic about the world. But at the same time, we've got to ask why some secular pundits uh, are sounding at times even more negative about popular culture traditions that are perfectly fine and even healthy in some ways. For example, Zach and I were talking about how just a couple of years ago, as we record this, some critics were talking about the death of the movie theater, the whole cinematic experience because of lockdowns 
was going to be finished. Nobody was ever going to gather it for a concert or a church service or a movie movie viewing anymore. It's passe. It's the end. Instead, we're all going to be sitting at home, working from home in lockdown, and we're only ever going to watch new movies on the streaming services. We're going to watch the binge shows and all of that, and no movie was ever going to go to theaters. Why did they say that? Especially because now theater movies are roaring back. You got Top Gun, Maverick breaking records. Uh, you had Spider-Man No Way Home breaking records. Lots of people loved Dune last fall. And the summer movie season, despite some clunkers, uh, is basically recovering. I noticed that one studio executive was taking a hard look at some of the lack of profits and some streaming ideas. So we'll look at that a little bit as best we can. But my main question this episode will be, how can Christians evaluate this weird impulse that some people have uh, to throw out good things in popular culture, to try to spy the trends ahead of time and predict uh, the future. That's on our next episode of Fantastical Truth. Wow, big long one here, but I'm so grateful for it. Uh, meanwhile, you may be a person, a Christian, who wants to help a secular reader. You should be. That is your call. That is a great commission. You are called by Christ himself on his way up to go into the world and make disciples and teach them all that Christ has commanded them. We are under this prime directive for sure, but it's going to affect our stories a little bit differently than we think. Let's make sure that we are using the stories that we love and share and sometimes create, uh, not just to help the secular reader we imagine or even the person in front of us, but to glorify God and enjoy him forever, being faithful to his call on our lives as we seek and find his fantastical truth. 